Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Neil Blumenthal. He is founder, co-CEO of Warby Parker. Uh, brilliant person. We got to meet each other. Um, we spent a little bit of time together over the f- past few years. And I, as, as soon as I met Neil, uh, I felt like um, I understood a bunch of things about why he was such an effective leader. And gosh, it's embarrassing to call somebody in the glasses business a visionary, but there's no other word for it. <laughs> it's terrible, Neil, but there's no other word for it, dude. I'll take Have it. you found one? <laughs> Have you found a better word to avoid using visionary? <laughs> we love puns in, in, in uh, the eyewear industry. <laughs> brutal, just brutal. But um, so yeah, Neil famously, there are legendary stories that he and his friends were Wharton when they came up with this idea. Uh, and I mean, I am not only, I mean, I'm a customer, I'm wearing Warby Parkers now and I wouldn't be if it weren't for the fact that I just love these glasses. They were so easy to get. They're so easy to replace. Like the whole thing works for me. So it's, uh, I am fascinated. Neil, here's where I want to start. And then I want to go backwards because what you've accomplished is amazing. And I think the more we can get granular about kind of like how you put yourself in a position to be the kind of person who would see this opportunity and then learn how to you know, understand and take advantage of it, I think it would be useful for people. But I want to start in a place that I think particularly now is very useful for people, which is rejection. I, you and I are both jumbos. Because before you got fancy and went to Wharton, <laughs> you went to the intersection of Somerville and Medford. Indeed. And uh, I mean, when I read the, heard the story about your, your wife to be painting the cannon, I was like, man, there are just so few of us who understand what that means. But I mean, I fully know uh, what it means. But uh, so I watched your speech at the Tufts commencement. Uh, thank you. And, it was wonderful. And you, you told a story about pitching Warby Parker to uh, an enormously successful man who was in like, I guess you said the luggage or fine goods or something like that. Um, and you, you talked about that he, rege- you know, it's in a funny way, you talked about things, you know, um, idiosyncrasies that happen in the meeting. But, but the headline was, you guys pitched your hearts out. You were for Wharton people. You were super passionate. And not only did he decline, but he gave you a little Simon Cowell, right? He told you all the reasons, or Kevin, uh, on, he told you all the reasons why it was a bad idea and it wasn't going to work. Is that right? Yeah, th- this was, um, he was a CEO of a really famous luxury brand. Prior to that, he had been the chairman of even bigger sort of luxury brand. Like, this is the guy that you dream to have a meeting with and you're so excited and then he kind of looks at you as like, who's going to design these glasses? And how are you going to sell them? You're going to sell them online. And um, why are you guys the best people to do this? <laughs> um, and I, I have a few questions about it. So you didn't even have prototypes when you walked into that room no. so early stage. So. Okay, you, you you tell the story really well, and I've read the I've read this recounted by a few different members of the group, but how you were all so excited by the idea you couldn't sleep. I know that feeling. But then you start putting it into process, and I guess the two questions I have are like at the beginning, and because it never stops really, but particularly in the beginning, man, how did you process rejection? Like where did you put it? 
Did you come up with a way of evaluating rejections? Did you have a process of cleansing yourself of the emotion of it to get like, like, like you walk out of that because what you didn't talk about and I haven't been able to like when you walked out of that room, how did it feel? And then what was the self-talk about what just happened? Yeah, I think we were really fortunate that there was four of us sort of walking out of that meeting, kind of looking at each other and sort of commiserating together, right? Misery loves company. We're like, whoa, that was a bad meeting. Um, and um, I, I think it helped us sort of like shake it off a little bit, right? It's sort of like you throw a bad pitch and the catcher comes out, talks to the pitcher, like, hey, you got this. Um, you know, I, and then, you know, being sort of like MBA students and, and business guys, we tried to be super rational and sort of like say, oh, well, he really didn't like, you know, we're not like a famous designer, you know, or don't have a traditional design background. Like that felt like something that we couldn't change. Um, so, but were we comfortable enough in like, let's say our merchandising capability that we could create an assortment and could work with factories to design something that we wanted? Did we believe over the long run that we could hire designers? Um, and so we just went sort of methodically, sort of step-by-step, step, um, you know, do we still think that this is a good idea? Um, and that's what I was curious about. If you, so did you absorb, cause like I've had these rejections, anyone who's, I, I, I always want to say like anybody who's succeeded sort of in any long-term way, like has dealt with many rejections along the way and, and rejections that are kind of like complete and total, like do something else kind of rejections. Right. It hurts if I, for me, even though, even as a veteran, and now, you know, the hurt lasts much longer and I also don't imbue it with too much, but did you take a minute to absorb the blow kind of, or did you guys go right into, all right, let's disambiguate and see where we are? I think we kind of laughed at ourselves first. Um, and maybe that was like our defense mechanism. Um, but it was also, I think, just core to who we are. Like, wow, we just got punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, right. You know, it... Um, and I think, you know, you know, people deal with rejection in, in different ways. Um, I, I think we tend to not take ourselves too seriously. So we're able to laugh at ourselves. And actually, um, one of the core values at Warby Parker is to take our work seriously, but not ourselves. Um, and, you know, I, I think that served us well in moments like that, where, you know, we just got some pretty harsh feedback. Um, I think the other thing that we would often do, and this maybe was a defense mechanism as well, is you always try and like hurt the credibility of the person. Absolutely. Sort of, like, you yeah, know, rejecting sure. you. And the problem in this case was that like this guy's resume was pristine. It was like, you know, he just hit grand slam after grand slam, just, you know, being this amazing executive building these world renowned luxury brands. But right being good at deflecting criticism we will say well you know of course he doesn't love what we're doing what we're doing is a little disruptive we don't have a traditional background of somebody going into fashion right um and we also had done our homework and we knew that fashion is an insider's game um and we felt like we had 
ways to sort of infiltrate the fashion community. And that would serve us well when we launched the brand and we were featured in Vogue and GQ. So we felt like we knew enough to be dangerous. And we also knew that people that were within the industry, and even though he wasn't in within the optical industry or, or I were specifically, he was still within fashion and we knew we were sort of outsiders. Um, and I think that's also important to always recognize, hey, everybody has biases, including ourselves. But when you're getting feedback, right, that feedback comes from somebody that has certain experience and, and perspective. Well, yeah, what's I wonder if you also out of that started to develop consciously a skepticism of supposed experts in some, meaning, right, you, in a way, it's not just, oh, well, he's not right for this, isn't, I, I wonder if part of it was, okay, we're going to have to figure out how to engage with experts in a way that isn't going to ding us personally. Like, like, was that a conscious learning that you, that you, that you got out of that, do you think? Yeah, I think looking back on it, definitely now, right, and I think it was important for us to always ask why, um, right? So if somebody tells you, hey, this is not going to work, then the question is why? So when people told us we couldn't sell glasses online, um, you know, on its surface, that feels easy to dismiss. But if it's an expert, let's ask why. Um, and then somebody might say, well, people want to try on the glasses first. Okay, that's legitimate. People did want to try on clothing first, and yet people are able to buy clothing online. Right. So why does that work? Oh, well, you know, you have uh, free shipping and free returns, and that reduces sort of the friction and it allows people to actually try on and then they just return. So it's a different type of trying on. It's trying on post-purchase. Now, for us, we then said, oh, well, we could put have similar policy. Is that good enough? Um, and then if people and people did tell us, well, it still is not going to work. We want to try on, you know, and we'd ask people why. And it's like, OK, well, I get it. Buying clothing is easier. People are better at it because they do it more frequently. You know, Americans buy glasses once every two years. So that's an infrequent purchase. It's usually a very guided experience. Right. The eye doctor or the person in the optical shop right, spends a lot of time with you. Okay, so yeah, maybe free shipping, free returns is not going to be enough to get people to buy online. And that gave us sort of the wherewithal, sort of going back to the drawing table to come up with the idea of like a home try-on. We ship people yes. five glasses, they have five um, days to try on at home. So that feedback was super helpful and helped us like come up with solutions, but it didn't deter us from right. you know, moving forward. Do you think the I do you think that so as um a sort of like rules of operation internally, the the notion that rather than living in the emotional reaction to rejection, your way out of it and the team's way out of it was ideating. Okay, we heard this. Yeah, we'll ding him a little bit. We'll get our emotions out by being like, well, that guy's a loser or whatever, even though we know he's not because he's a fucking world beater. But... <laughs> Then okay, let's just like actually keep going. Let's just let's add, add, let's let's answer the next set of questions that aren't going to be asked. And that was sort of like a mode that that you taught yourselves together to go into, or naturally fe fell into. Yeah, definitely. I I think that's exactly sort of the our approach. And actually, thinking about it now, I wonder if part of it was also thinking that 
hey, we need to have answers to all these questions because at some point we're going to raise money and investors are going to have these questions and we need to be able to answer them thoughtfully and convincingly. Um, so um, I think that was always in the in the back of our minds as well is that none of these questions are stupid questions because, you know, they're all we're going to have to answer them in, in the future at some point. Yeah, I mean, I just find that for most people, the fear of reject, the fear of hearing you're stupid or your idea, I guess most people, I think, have a really hard time separating your idea doesn't work, you know, from you're stupid. Right. <laughs> and right. it seems like you figured out, all of you, how to depersonalize that process, right? Yeah. Um, it you know, maybe it was, you know, my, my parents had instilled a, a lot of confidence in me. Um, but yeah, I, I wasn't going to walk out of one of these meetings. Like I, I felt at this point in my life that, Hey, um, I'm a competent person. I'm not an idiot, right. I can yes. have a good idea. Maybe the good idea won't be great and maybe it will be proven wrong. Um, but I haven't been sort of um, less than thoughtful up until up until this point. Um, and I think that's the other thing that people sort of, they, they think every entrepreneur is a Mark Zuckerberg who drops out of, you know, college, yes. um, when actually the majority of entrepreneurs in America are in their 30s. They're people that have already had some professional experience, right? They're people that are generally pretty thoughtful and, and competent. Um, so, you know, maybe they've handled some rejection in the past, but um, at, at least by the time they're starting a business, hopefully they've, they've thought through, you know, maybe 50 to 80% of the, you know, issues they might, might face. Yeah. And we're going to get into the biography and, and, and um, I just pronounced that word as though English were my fourth language. We're going to get into the biography, <laughs> biography. What the fuck is that? Oh, uh, we're going to get into the biography um, in a second. I the only, uh, uh, like right now, because I think a bunch of stuff about how you, who you were at that moment is really crucial to all of this. Um, I always want to know on these kinds of things, I guess two things. One, did that dude ever contact you to say like, I was wrong, congratulations? Like, did you ever get the thing of no. a nice job? <laughs> no, to this day, no. you've never run across him? No, never. Uh Oh, you know, my big embarrassment from when I was in the record <laughs> business before Dave and I wrote our first script was I, there's one artist that I passed on and I like went small show, saw them, met them, like knew the guy and I just couldn't quite pull the trigger for these various reasons. But I told him like years later, it's, it's Smashing Pumpkins and I just missed it. Wow. And I was in a bookstore and he was there and I went up to him and he remembered and we had this great conversation and I was so oh, glad that I was like, it. he loved it. He was like, I mean, I've told this once before in here, but he was like, dude, nobody but me knew. Like I was doing something so weird that I completely, he was, he was a total like manchi great to me. And I felt so great to be like, you were right. I was wrong. I was an idiot. Right. I would think the guy, but how do you defend, here's a, a question, Neil. How do you, now that you're on the other side and you're hearing pitches from people, friends, you know, all that stuff or ideas, or, how do you make sure you're not past it and you're not like looking at things from the expert's point of view of the way it was when you and your friends did it. Like, how do you keep yourself open? Do you think about that? 
Uh, absolutely. So actually, um, on the side, I have a venture fund and it's called sure. Good Friends. Um, it was started by my co-founder, Dave, and me, our other co-founder, Jeff, who runs Harry's and our other good friend from business school, Joey Zwillinger, who started Allbirds. Um, and we're all good friends. We want to be good friends to, to founders. Um, and as part of deciding whether to not invest in a business, we're often um, right saying no, and it, and it feels really weird. Um, you know, I, I think we do sometimes get it wrong. Um, and, yeah. But I think our learning is, hey, it's more important to bet on the entrepreneur than necessarily the idea, because the idea sort of evolves. Um, and if we think about what's brought us success, it was really being thoughtful and knowing every last detail about the market and the industry and you know how we were going to serve customers and being super customer focused um, so those are things that that we look for you know in this particular moment we also see a lot of good entrepreneurs and a lot of good ideas but maybe um, venture capital is not the right way to capitalize these businesses um, so when that's the case, we try to explain it to the entrepreneur to say, hey, it's not them. It's this form of capital is not. And do you try to sure? Do you try to um, tap into kind of since you were pretty recently in their seat? Does that give you a kind of like um, empathy for the situation? But also, is it sort of like um, a thing that re recalibrates you to not end up being the kind of stuffy one who doesn't get it? Like. Are you aware of those things? Um, I try to be, and I try to also be helpful in some way. Oh, so at least great. I didn't yeah. like, you know, waste this person's time. And like, maybe I can share some sort of tidbit from our journey that may be helpful. So at least there's some sort of, not that these are, it's a transactional interaction, but at least like they walk away with, with, with something. Um, Cause I recognize like, oh, Right, they're investing their time to pitch me, yeah. and like, oh, being told no. And and the issue is, is that no matter what you do, the person always is going to be like, screw that guy. <laughs> well, no, it's really. I mean, a VC fascinate. You know, they fascinate. I mean, I don't know if you heard. Like Andreessen and I did it. He came on this podcast, and I was on his, and we spent we spent hours talking about, you know, how you think. And he's obviously got one of the people who's done it the best. We spent hours thinking about it. You know, I love his thing about a warm introduction. Like if he, if somebody he knows get, says you should meet this person, he'll meet them and bring them in. He just wants someone, the entrepreneur to be able to find a warm introduction to him. And then, then he's happy to be there, which I love as a, as a kind of a guiding principle of who you're going to spend your time listening to. It makes a ton of sense. I mean, right. If, if somebody's cold calling, they probably haven't worked hard enough to, to get to you. Right. Yeah. No, I think that's great. So I can't believe that guy never called you or wrote you an email like, Oh, guess I was wrong. That's amazing. <laughs> or tried to get into your series. A that's also right. amazing. To me. Like he should have done something. Right. So talk a little bit now if you about like I know you grew up in the village but like I didn't grow I grew up on Long Island and like city kids just seemed so sophisticated to me but what I now know having raised children in the city is like there are so many levels of sophistication in New York City kids based on a whole bunch of different 
factors. Like, who were you as a kid in the city? I know one of your parents was an educator and one was a business person, but like, like who were you? Where did you fit? What kind of school did you go to? And you know, what? Yeah, who were you as as a kid, and how did you interact? Sure. So, it, what's funny is I think in like lower school and middle school, it's probably more naive than um, like, you know, Long Island kids or suburban kids. Um, but then in high school, it quickly like flips. Um, and I'm not sure why why that is. Um, maybe it's because there's also a lot more sort of like only children in, in like in, in the city. And so you don't learn as much from older siblings. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but um, I went to a school called Little Red Schoolhouse, and then went to a school called Friends. Um, these are definitely progressive schools where um, everybody was friends, uh, which which was really nice and a very supportive sort of an environment, I think, to grow up in and, and to learn. Um, I think just actively also walking on the street, like my, my dad would point out sort of uh, everything. Like we um, lived a couple blocks away from where the triangle uh, waist shirt yeah. um, factory was. And there was that fire, the that fire. Yeah. impact on, on the labor movement. Um, lived, you know, right next to Washington Square Park, would walk through there and um, I'd ask my mom, what are, uh, what is that person saying? It's like, oh, he's just trying to offer us drugs. Just, just ignore him. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> right. And, and were you, uh, in school, like how did, did you fit in well socially? Were you, uh, did school come easily to you? Was it, was it hard? Was it interesting to you? Yeah. I, I enjoyed school. I was always very social. Um, and you know, we didn't have sort of school president per se, but we had co-clerks of the agenda committee, which was like, right, the sort of progressive private school equivalent of, of class president. Um, and um, yeah, I, you know, I've also played sports, um, played soccer, basketball and, and tennis. I uh, was captain of the soccer and the basketball teams. Now, granted, there were 55 kids in my graduating class, so this does not make me a, a, a star athlete. Um, but they were just, I would say, learning opportunities, even being a big fish in a small pond, right? They're like these leadership opportunities, you know, being captain of a of a you know sports team um, that I think was, you know, helped me grow. Listen, I, I went to Long Island Friends Academy, so uh, I don't want, and I played varsity sports and I, don't denigrate our varsity sports just because we went to Quaker, nonviolent Quaker, small schools. If we played on those varsity teams, damn it, we had those varsity jackets. Right. We're athletes. Neil, we're athletes. Come on. Um, right. So did you think about things? I wasn't captain of um, a team, though. I did get to direct, I did direct the uh, musical. Did you think about leadership though? Was that important to you? I mean, and a captain of a team, you must have really thought about it a bit or noticed coaches a bit. Uh, I'm always interested in like where the seeds are. Cause like when I did direct that, if you would have asked me, even when I was directing the musical junior year, you know, one kid is picked to do that. I would, no part of me would have known that this was what I was gonna do with my life. I just knew it was something I loved. So, uh, but it was there. Like if you then look back, it makes total sense that that's what right. I did, right? I had no idea. Um, so how conscious were you of like, 
oh, I like being in a, I like leading or I'm good at leading or I'm learning how to I may do that. Were you thinking about that stuff? Um, it's funny. I, I don't, I don't think so. I think it was more that I loved jumping into action and I loved talking and um, I loved sort of doing. And I think that that was um, sort of the opportunities for me to sort of do those almost like tactical actions as opposed to like some strategic plan like oh i love leading this is how it'll manifest itself now of course when i was working on my college application then i realized oh this is the narrative of, of leadership. Oh, oh yeah but oh i was even i wasn't even saying like um were you thinking about I want to be a leader more like the first thing you were saying the tie were you when you were in those positions were you consciously trying to be better at it or were you just doing you know because there are a couple different ways people like I, i've had captains of a lot of teams i played on and there are the ones who you can tell at night spend 10 minutes thinking about it with the next day oh yeah i got to talk to that guy about how he's playing defense i think the point like like and then there were people who weren't and would just kind of come in and their job as captain was to just lead by example and just be really good at the game. And so that's kind of what I'm asking you is which one of those were you? Yeah, I think it was, yeah, definitely the former where I was thinking, oh, like, you know, this person can be doing this better. I should talk to him about it. Um, and I was also one of those, so, and I still am one of those athletes, like I don't love running, but I'll run all day long playing a sport and I actually get energy from being with other people. So if we're doing like suicides on the basketball court um, and like other people start to huff and puff, that actually gives me energy to be like, okay, like we've got to motivate. All of us have to sort of double down here. Um, and But if I'm doing it on my by myself, I'm like, oh, this is the worst. I've just got to give up and stop. <laughs> so you're energized by the group thing and actually by sort of helping the group get better. No, that's really fascinating, right? That, that you were right i think there are in sports captain those kind of things and it's pretty interesting that you were like oh yeah we can be better we got to do these things and i know that that includes looking at yourself from all the stuff you've done and going how can i contribute more and all that clearly um so that's interesting that you were doing that then and and am i right that one parent was in business and one was in education is that sort um, of right sort of my mom was a nurse so she was okay, in yeah. healthcare for for 40 years um, and yeah, my, she was serving, she was serving. Yeah. Okay. Exactly. And, and that's sort of, I think where I learned a, a, a lot about, you know, how to give back to the community and yeah, my, my dad ended up getting an MBA and would walk me to school and then go to NYU Stern before it was called Stern. Um, and then, uh, yeah, became a, a CPA and, and worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers. And did you think like what, when you were leaving, because your path is fascinating, right. And that you went went to international relations. It's funny. I played tennis the other night with a guy and he was an IR major at Tufts and ended up going into business. I mean, some people end up going into politics from going all different places from, from Fletcher or taking <laughs> classes in Fletcher. And, um, so I'm, uh, yeah, like when you were, ha uh, graduating high school and heading off to college, what was the extent of your ambition at that time? What, if you were envisioning yourself, going off and, and growing up, what did you imagine that, that work are the kinds of targets? Yeah, I think that's some big ambitions. I probably thought like, oh, 
one day could I be secretary of state? One day could I, you know, work at the CIA? Could I, you know, I mean, commerce is still on the table. You could be secretary of commerce. Why not? That's still on the table. Totally on the table. Right. Yeah. Why not? So, yeah. I wanted to yeah, do something in international relations and, you know, um, it, just like super basic stuff. Like I thought like, ah, I'd probably be good around the table, get, get some people stop killing each other. And, you know, could we end a war or two? And that would be a, a nice impact. Yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. All, yeah. Amy, my wife jokes about people raised in a certain kind of like upper middle class New York thing that they always tell though parents are always like well why shouldn't you be the secretary of state right, right. or something it's like every kid thought so yeah that makes sense but you you know obviously you had certain tools and skills that would uh i think so that's what you, what you thought and then you know one of the things that hit me in the face at tufts but i was raised not in the city so one of the reasons i think city kids are so sophisticated because you know by the time you're in high school you are just traveling by yourself all over new york and so you are face to face with all sorts of different human beings in different states of extremists and also different economics. Like it's, you kind of, even if you're focused, you're kind of, it's just, right? You're swimming in it in a way. Right, right. But one of the things that I noticed at Tufts, because of Somerville and like, you know, Medford and Somerville, but then you're also close to Davis and Porter Square and Harvard Square. It was like, how many worlds there were in one place? Like how many different sets of economic and social groups it really hit me, you know, because Medford, you know, there were kids in Medford who were in really different and difficult circumstances and they were, you could feel the anger on some of them. Yeah. And then you could feel, you know, you would go and be in a coffee shop that was like all professors if you went into Porter Square, Davis Square, you know. Right. So I, did any of that hit you? Were you the kind of kid who started to notice that stuff or, or not? Well, it's funny you use the phrase hit. I mean, I literally got my nose broken. <laughs> but, you know, I got mugged in Medford too. Yeah. <laughs> no, did you? Did that happen? Yeah. To you? I mean, what yeah. happened? A friend was having a party, a house party, and a couple guys sort of came in with their sort of shirts off looking for a fight, you know, a, something out of a movie. Um, we told them to go away, shut the door. They went away. But then I looked out of the window and a buddy of mine was having a cigarette um, on the front porch. And I saw him sort of grapple with a guy go over the side. So I ran out, tried to pull the guy off of my buddy. And then I heard, hey, and stupidly, I turned around. And I was like, oh, somebody's saying something. I just got cold cocked and uh, broke my nose. Um, but yeah, you was, didn't happen to mention that in your commencement speech. Right. <laughs> I didn't know that story. That's funny. It happened. Yeah. And by the way, I didn't get my nose broken, but I got I got um just walking up the hill from the Medford, from Jay's or whatever, I got jumped. That, right. That's true. But I did know I will say, like, it was really eye-opening to me, um, in a useful, like productive internal way. Um, about maybe not the way people use the word privilege now, but I was suddenly really aware of like the world in a different way. And I, you know, I wonder because you then went from there on a path that was not a straight business path. And I'm wondering like, what, can you talk a little about that and about what led you to want to become someone interested in like social justice in a way, not social, you know, like going to the Hague and taking classes there. And yeah, you know, I think it, as I look back on this now, it's very much an entrepreneurial mindset 
but didn't realize it at the time. Like there were just certain things to me that didn't make sense because they seemed fixable and it just needed folks to invest a little more time and energy into understanding something, hopefully raise awareness with other folks and then solve it, whether it was, you know, clean water or, um, you know, in what ended up being sort of glasses for me, right? It didn't make sense to me that glasses invented 800 years ago, right? Weren't widely available to everybody. So I, in college, I would read about a particular issue and literally would keep me up at night being like, this feels solvable. Let's like, how can we go about solving it? But that's amazing. And really like, I think that um, you could see some people would want to disempower somebody who's like, well, why can't I solve these problems? But like, there is something about that time in life actually sitting down and thinking, well, what if someone, what if a group of people could solve this problem? And like, how? And it's, that must've been like, I can picture that, like staying up and trying to solve those problems. Um, would you then talk to people? Like, did you have experience, like before you guys got together to solve this one, had you activated any of that stuff? Like, were you involved in, in any sort of like little mini movements on these fronts? Would you, t you know? Yeah, I'm trying to think uh, what or how are you? How did you express your entrepreneurship? I guess would be the, the question beyond ideating, or did, were you just ideating until you then decided to do this? Right. Well, um, in high school and college, I would sell fake IDs and uh, well, that's know, nightclubs. That, <laughs> no, but that's valid. Like, okay, that's funny, but also like. You're developing a lot. I mean, you, one develops certain skills that that way for sure that are valuable, right? And yeah, it was sort of interesting, right? You'd have to identify, hey, what were the cool places to go? Um, who is the person that's in charge? Um, what's the crowd? Who you want to invite? This is for like club promoting and you know engaging people in nightlife. And actually, Boston was a great environment for this because, to your point there were so many different crowds, right? You had sort of on Tufts campus, there were a bunch of different crowds, um, but then there was also Cambridge and you had Harvard and MIT. It was hard to get those guys to go to nightclubs because they just didn't go out much, but um, would build relationships at BU and Northeastern. Um, I would often throw parties with um, guys uh, from Babson because they were particularly entrepreneurial and Right. There were sort of parties that we would do that was really aimed towards, I would say, um, you know, more sort of like grown up in, in America, college students. And then we'd also throw parties that had a lot of the international students, particularly from sort of the Middle East or Latin America. Um, because you knew those people from um, flat from international relations, from like the classes you were taking, right? Yeah, in some exactly. Way. And it was also different music that they liked and they were different. It's just like a completely different scene. I mean, yeah, I think this is, I mean, this, I haven't heard you talk about this much, but this seems like it must've been formative and valuable to you, like, cause actually you obviously made money doing it and it must've been like, okay, well, if I put my mind to it, I can actually like make this work. Yeah. And it was also a, a great way to meet people, meet, meet people. girls. And <laughs> of course, no, of course. Like, um, that makes complete sense. Um, you know, obviously when I was at Tufts, I 
not nightclubs because my head was in a different place, but obviously that's when, you know, I started working and spent all my time trying to work with Tracy and make that record happen. And that was all like very simple, you know, a certain way I was always in these weird rooms that no one else, you know, trying to solve this problem. Uh, so I completely relate to it. And that was really valuable for everything I did afterwards too. following, you know, dealing with the rejection of that and following this idea that was like just mine at a certain point And I had no idea if anyone was going to agree with me. And it, like, so I completely relate. Um, especially cause you were right that we were in the same, I mean, you're, I know exactly where you were, you know? Right. Um, <laughs> and then how did you end up going to the Netherlands, dude? So I, I was having trouble figuring out what I wanted to do after graduation yeah. um, and realized what I did really enjoy was, as I thought about my studies, what were the classes that I enjoyed the most? They tended to not just be international relations, but in particular focused on issues of war and peace. Um, and what I started to see is that folks that were sort of leaders when it came to sort of resolving issues of war, right, really knew their stuff, right, because these conflicts, armed conflicts, right, there was always a long, long history to, to all of them. Um, and at the time, um, you know, this was, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, right, the height of globalization, you know, we have the fall of the Soviet Union, and just um, sort of the world is the oyster, the height of sort of multilateral institutions, really expanding the, um, you had um, the International Criminal Court sort of coming um, to fruition in, in The Hague, you'd already had the International Court of Justice there. Um, and there was this program on sort of conflict resolution and international mediation. And I thought that this would be an interesting place for me to meet more people, but also to get actually like concrete skills in negotiation and, and mediation. Um, so yeah, I, I sort of traveled to The Hague and started doing a bunch of coursework there um, and, and loved it. Did those skills, like, do they help you? Does that mediation, do those things you learn, do you use them in business? I, I think so, you know, it, so much of business is right personal relationships or at least you know having um right creating personal connection and these skills that when you're mediating um it's super basic but it's just you know it in creating an environment where somebody can speak to uh, what they're looking for. And if, right, if you're trying to negotiate something, which you do every single minute of every day in, in business, you got to know what the other side wants and you have to create an environment where they're going to actually share that with you. Um, and I, I felt like I definitely learned that sort of in, in The Hague. And shortly thereafter is when you got involved with Vision Spring, right? And, yeah. and it's fascinating, right? Because you didn't dive into that thinking it was a business or did you thinking it was a business opportunity? No, I, I think it was just one of those things that I got personally really attached and interested in because it was solving a real problem. A billion people on the planet need glasses. Glasses were invented a long time ago. Like there's, this is clearly a distribution problem. There's got to be a, a, a solution here um, because, you know, before I sort of latched onto this idea and been introduced to the, the founder of Vision Spring, you know, I was still going down the path of 
um, international relations and conflict resolution. And as I met more and more people that worked either in government or at the UN or elsewhere or at think tanks, what I realized is that these folks, there's two different paths, right? One is that you become a domain expert in one particular region or one particular conflict, and you got to go really deep and right get like a PhD or something. Yeah. Oh yeah, and yes. that wasn't me. I'm more of going sort of more broad than than deep. And then the other path is to become basically a either elected office or a political appointee. Um, and there's a million ways to do that, um, but it wasn't going to be by working at really like a think tank or or going through that path. So then I was thinking, okay, well, where else can I have impact? And that's when a family friend introduced me um, to Jordan Caslow, an optometrist who had this idea to train low-income women to start their own businesses, um, you know, giving simple vision screenings and selling glasses in, in their community. And then through that, you happen to learn a bunch of stuff about eyewear and the eyewear business. Yeah. So, you know, here I was traveling to places like El Salvador and Guatemala and Ghana and India and Bangladesh and right distributing glasses to people living in less than $4. Amazing. Yeah, amazing. And as we were scaling, right, I had to figure out different sources uh, of glasses. So keep going up the supply chain. And, you know, initially I was working with sort of local wholesalers, then sort of nationwide distributors. And then it was like, oh, well, I'm literally buying, you know, hundreds of thousands of glasses. I should go straight to the, the manufacturers um, and, you know, visited these factories in, in China. And then you see in these factories here, I'm just, you know, producing glasses for people living on less than $4 a day. And on the same production lines are some of the biggest names in fashion. And you're like, huh, why are these being sold for, you know, $500 on Madison Avenue? And yet, like, I'm providing glasses in El Salvador for, you know, yes. $2.50. And you must have also seen the miracle of what glass, like, in a way, glass are something we take for granted. I mean, you must have seen, because Seth Godin talks about this, you know, and, and he's written about the challenges of getting people, but still, the mo you must have seen this moment of, the glasses going on people and them coming to life, right? It, it, it is, it's magical. Um, you know, the smile erupts sort of ear to ear. Um, and it's, it's just one of those things, right? There's few things on the planet that have yes. such an immediate impact. And a, and a pair of glasses takes somebody that can't see and then magically that they, they can see. And it's pretty special. Um, and the other thing that was sort of equally awesome is, um, right, I wasn't the one putting the glasses on somebody's face. It was um, the folks in these yes. communities that we were training that were doing it. So then to see, you know, uh, this woman um, who you maybe didn't have a job before or, um, you know, had was, you know, growing tomatoes suddenly is a respected member of her community because she's providing this product that is creating these, you know, ear to ear smiles and is helping people earn an income and helping kids, you know, be more productive at, at school. Um, that was equally sort of awesome. One of my sisters that we just did, like my, was probably like, they were my parents where we've, I mean, it's all become in the family apocryphal. Like it was 10 years too late, but probably six months too late. One of my sisters was like, 
they, we didn't know she somehow, you know, whatever the vision test was, was fine. But she then, she like couldn't see the blackboard and, and, and she was having problems in school and they thought it was learning. Like they didn't know. And mm. I mean, I lived it. I saw the difference. Um, however long that period was, suddenly she had glasses and like it, the world changed. She could see the blackboard. So I know. And that, 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 we didn't have the problem, you know, of being able to find or afford the glasses. We're right. just a collectively morons who didn't figure it out. <laughs> I, in my defense, I was eight years old, but uh, this probably wasn't on me to solve. But I do remember uh, what a big deal that was. And so, yeah, for you to see that must have been um, amazing. At the time, though, dude, were you thinking it? Because, you know, you're this great capitalist uh, achiever and you do all the, clearly the mission of Warby Parker is so informed by this experience in terms of all the glasses that you've given away to all these people and millions and millions. But during this time that you were doing this and sort of using what you understood about business to cut good deals for the benefit of all these entrepreneurs, you know, the, un the entrepreneurs you were trying to give a life to basically and help had your own personal thing and you must have been living on very little money and eating like what was your quality of life when you were back in new york in your like apartment or whatever it must have been fairly um meager i would imagine yeah i this was uh, i guess the benefit of growing up in new york i just lived at home with my parents nice. that's great <laughs> Which right was, like otherwise yeah that wouldn't have worked at all but i would you know go from living at an eye clinic in you know El Salvador for you know six months and then come back home for a couple months and you know live at home and then go to you know uh, Hyderabad in in India um, and live there for a few months setting up a, a program. Um, but yeah, I I think it was also probably I realized how to be super sort of frugal uh, both given I was at a nonprofit with limited means i had to deploy those dollars effectively but also yeah when i was at home how you know how could i go and uh, eat dinner <laughs> yeah. fun. right i also wonder how that experience which probably you don't know over like years i mean how it just must have shifted certain core things molecularly inside you like seeing just the relative difference in the way people are able to live, right? I mean, I just have to imagine that it helped you, maybe going back to my first question, I mean, helped you sail through some of what other people might find difficult spots because you didn't just visit places, but you were like really like engaged in the kind of poverty that's hard for most Americans to picture, right? Yeah, that, you know, definitely it's funny. I, I've spent more time in yellow school buses in Central America than I have in, in New York. So, um, you know, a lot of the school buses have mandatory retirement in, in the U.S. I think they end up being used for probably like 10 years or so. And then they're often sold um, and make their way down to, to Latin America, where they kind of make up sort of the public transportation system. But even though they're mostly sort of like these private sort of bus routes, but I would, you know, spend time in in these yellow school buses, which were right, the normal buses going around sort of rural El Salvador and, and Guatemala and other parts of, you know, Central and, and South America. Um, and yeah, 
I'd always get the strangest looks like, what is this like gringo doing on my bus in the middle of this road? Right. No, of course. <laughs> and and so then I, 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 you, you, I don't want to ignore obviously the thing that most people find the, the, mo the most significant, uh, you know, which is launching and, and building this incredible, um, uh, company. And I, you know, the story has been, been told a lot, but there's still certain things that I think are, uh, you know, worth talking about. And, and, when you and your friends were talking and you started realizing, you know, you just, so you decide, you come back from that experience and do you have a moment where you decide, okay, now I got to figure out how to be a grown up? I mean, is that part of what the going to business school was for you? Yeah. You know, I, I, I found that the work I was doing at Vision Spring was super rewarding and super challenging. Um, and, you know, when I would describe it to people, people would be like, oh, that's super interesting. Um, but, I felt like I didn't necessarily get the credit for the level of complexity that it was. And I, and I think right. in general, um, you know, folks underappreciate sort of the, the work of a lot of people working in the nonprofit sector. Yes, so, sure. you know, I felt that to make sort of my next career move, uh, you know, I almost needed uh, a, a, some sort of stamp or additional credibility. And that's why I felt like getting an MBA um, would, would do that for me. Um, so in particular, going to Wharton, which is uh, in, in particular of all the business schools is known for being like the most rigorous from a finance perspective, um, thought that that would sort of help open more, more doors for me. And did you, were you friends with any of the people you uh, founded the company with beforehand or did you all meet there? Uh, we all met there. Um, well, Jeff, my co-founder, we had played camp against each other, summer camp, um, <laughs> sort of the Northeast Jewish sort of. Summer where did you each wait? I got to know where did you each go? Uh, I went to Wenaki and and he went to Cedar. Perfect. That's just <laughs> perfect. I went to I went to Tomahawk. We played uh, uh, yeah, Wenaki, and Dave, my partner, went to Wenaki. Right. Dave, who I do all this, you met, he's a Wenaki guy too. That's hilarious. Amazing. Uh, yeah, hilarious. Um, and uh, so you went, uh, you you go there and you guys get this idea that you're going to do this and you talk about how you stayed up all night. How much thought at the beginning did the four of you, it was four of you? Yeah. How much thought did the four of you put into how you were going to work together? Meaning how you were going to problem solve when if there were disagreements, uh, how you were going to, I know you were in obviously a program that was all about all of this, Yeah, but I didn't, and like, I think you all took Adam Grant's class cause he writes about it. So, but how did you, how did you guys codify, like, not just the core value thing, which now you have, but like, okay, we have this big idea. We're going to try to do it. We're still kind of young. We're still like, we got to, yeah, I just wonder how you yeah. figure that out. So to your point, we were sort of, you know, simultaneously, we were taking marketing classes, operations class, management classes, and all the management classes were a lot on giving and receiving feedback and how do you create a high functioning team. Um, and we realized, like, oh, like building a business is super hard, probably like the hardest thing we'll ever do. And we're going to put our own money into it. So the stakes are going to be super high. Um, you don't hear about many four person teams, right. uh, you know, building great businesses. And certainly what you hear most about from a founder perspective is that at some point there's a massive blow up and the founders hate each other. So we spent an inordinate amount of time early on thinking about that dynamic. 
Um, and actually what we would do is on a weekly basis, we'd go to our local bar, um, which was called Roosevelt's Pub. We'd sit at a four top, each have a beer, and we'd go around the table and we'd give each other feedback. We'd say, hey, this you're doing well, this can be improved. Hey, when you shoot me a 10 page email at two in the morning about what's supposed to be my area of the business, like I wanna reach through the computer screen and, and strangle <laughs> yes. you. Um, and what this did, and how did they respond? How did you respond when they said that to you? So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what what you quickly realize is that, like, you know, you're sending this email not because you you know question whether the person is doing their job or not. It's more that this is just on your mind, and you just want to share it with them. You probably think, hey, they probably have already thought of eighty percent of this, but maybe there's some that they haven't already. Um, and you realize that someone's not doubting you, uh, but just trying to be supportive. Yes. And if you don't bring it up, then that that's the type of thing that festers and that blows up. And, you know, when you surface it in a, in a safe setting, then, you know, you easily resolve it and you move on to, to the next thing. And that helped us build a real healthy sort of work dynamic. And you kept doing that? Like, did you guys keep doing that as you were building the company yeah. and as it was growing and growing? We kept doing it up until graduation. The other thing that we did was, you know, there were four of us. So we thought about, you know, how are we going to make decisions? Okay. Right. Well, let's make sure that you need a super majority. So three of the four to decide something big. Um, okay. Well, what happens if it's split two, two? Well, we decided, Hey, we're going to go to one of our professors and they'll be the, the, the tie vote or the, the, the tiebreaker. Um, then we also sort of came up with a plan like, hey, are we all going to be equal partners? Yes. Let's all put the same amount of money. We each committed to put in $25,000 each. And then if we needed to, we'd each put an incremental 5,000. So 30,000 each, 120,000 total. And we created a vesting schedule by which every month we would each get equity. So if we all stayed with the company up until graduation, we'd each be 25% owners. But if somebody did leave, that's fine. No harm, no foul. They would get credit for time served. But the other three co-founders would continue to get additional equity. Um, so they would own a little bit more come graduation. And of course, we all stayed with the company until we graduated. But even sort of thinking through that, I think demonstrated- That's to amazing. Well, did that sort of thinking end up when two of you ended up becoming the people who were really going to run the company? Was that all that thinking kind of set up that made that, I know nothing's ever fully easy, but made that clear and as sort of copacetic as that kind of process could be? Absolutely. And we had so much practice having these difficult conversations with each other and working with each other that even though we didn't know each other for, you know, 10, 20 years, um, we had worked really effectively together over, you know, like an 18 month period. And do all four of you still talk a lot? <laughs> we do. Uh, we just all went to sort of the, the, the Kygo concert at MSG. We all go to dinner. We all vacation together. It's actually pretty sick. I mean, that's just amazingly wonderful. Look, you know, I do what I do um, uh, with my lifelong best friend. So I completely understand that.
I want just two more things, and there's so much more I could I could talk to, to you uh, uh, about, man. But there are a couple of things that I'm curious about. One is, you know, the last couple of years have been challenging. Um, you guys went public. It was amazing. I'm sure there are a host of challenges to running a public company. They're different than running a private company. I've talked to lots of people do that. But how do you, how has all your training allowed you to surf through, you know, these moments in time when the institutional investors might see the company different than you do or when they think, how, how has all this allowed you to stay sanguine through real, you know, mud, choppy waters? Yeah. So I think if there's one thing that I've learned, it's the, the most thoughtful wins. And um, these have been really complicated times. And if you're going to sort of manage through them, you need to be super thoughtful and, and deliberate. So, um, you know, when we were in the beginning of the pandemic, for example, before it was a pandemic, we were watching this novel coronavirus emerge in East Asia, and we thought it was a supply chain risk. And we started making preparations, pulling inventory forward because we produce a lot of frames in China and Japan, um, and then it started to spread to Europe. And then it was clear, right, it was going to come to the US. And this was no longer a supply chain risk, but actually a health and safety risk for our employees, for our customers. Um, and uh, we needed to prepare for that. So first of all, what do we know about a pandemic? Absolutely nothing. So um, we got introductions to sort of top epidemiologists and we put them on retainer and they started to advise us. So we were able to act quickly. We were one of the first national retailers. It was effectively us and Apple. This was Friday the 13th, a very ominous day in, in March 2020, that we closed all of our stores. Um, and as far as I know, the, the first sort of national sort of optical yeah. company to, to do that. Um, and that was the right thing to do to protect our team, to protect our customers. Um, we ended up doing a million more things for our team and, and our customers and, and the community. But, you know, that decision wasn't like a rapid quick decision. It was an informed decision because we started being thoughtful and, and were prepared for it. Um, similarly, um, you know, we were able to continue to pay our store team members, even though the stores were closed, but that was because we had managed the business effectively, that we were well capitalized, that right. we, you know, were in a position to, to do that. Uh, similarly, um, right, when, you know, George Floyd was murdered and, um, you know, you had, um, you know, protests in the streets, you had um, companies um, coming out with rash public statements that generally were of a good sentiment, but then would get attacked saying, hey, put your money where your mouth is, that that sentiment is nice, that you're against racism, but, you know, what does that mean? And then you saw all these companies, you know, make large sort of financial commitments. And then employees of those companies would be like, what are you guys doing? Like, how about you look inwardly and, and you know, clean your own house before, yeah. you know, contributing a lot of uh, money elsewhere. And I think what we tried to do is um, start by looking inwardly and, and start by saying, hey, what are we doing well? Um, what can we build on that we've been doing from, you know, from fighting racism and from an inclusion um, and belonging and an equity standpoint? And we put together a really thoughtful racial equity strategy. Um, and again, we just have time and time again, see whether it's individuals or companies sort of 
rush to push something out because they feel that there's all this urgency and pressure as opposed to being thoughtful about what is the challenge at hand and how are you going to meet it. And is that also a way of saying that just because some investors might decide something about your revenues at a certain moment, you're not, you're going to be more thoughtful in the way you're not going to be reactive to that. You're going to be thoughtful and looking forward and just know you're going to continue to run and keep building your business with the confidence that they're all going to catch up in time. Definitely. And that's the thing is like, as leaders, our job are effectively to be shock absorbers, right? There is going to be a lot of stuff going on externally. um, And, you know, you don't want to be a leader that sort of swings back and forth violently, even if the rest of the world is swinging back and forth violently, you need to prevent your team from, you know, suffering from, from whiplash. And certainly as you're describing what's happened in the last year is that, you know, the entire financial markets went from rewarding growth at all costs to profitability at all costs. Um, And those companies that were on one end of the spectrum are in experience, a lot of pain as they transition to the other you know, we'd always believed in sustainable growth. How do we grow aggressively and quickly, but at the same time, you know, build sort of the infrastructure for that growth? How do we expand profitability every year? So, you know, have we made adjustments to our strategy given the sort of new environment? Absolutely, but it hasn't required a massive, you know, pendulum swing. No, that makes complete sense. I mean, someone who's thought a lot about how do you break a full court press? Because when you panic, when you let the full court press determine what you do with the ball, it's gonna the full court press gonna work every time. And you know, I've had that feeling of being rattled when suddenly the ball's in my hand and you're you know you're, the full court press is coming. If you haven't thought ahead about it, you're dead. If you've thought ahead about it, you know exactly where you're gonna pass the ball and you're gonna get a layup. So right. those things, I I think your all this training of your life probably prepared you. Um, for this. Hey, man, thank you so much for having this conversation. I think it's going to really be useful for people. And um, where can people find you online? Are you on Instagram publicly? Uh, I'm on Instagram, Neil Blumenthal. Um, uh, on Twitter, I'm just a lurker. <laughs> so, but but Instagram is where people can find you. Um, and uh, man, I love Warby. As you know, I, I think the world of you and I love Warby Parker. I'm a um, I broke my glasses at the beginning of the pandemic, right when this was all difficult, and I was able to get another pair of them. And uh, I was so happy. And um, yeah, I, I think what you guys figured out is such an incredible, useful thing. And, um, you know, you've clearly, it's clear to me, you've run the company as ethically as you set out to. And I think that's really wonderful. Um, so Thank thanks so for much. thanks for doing this, man. Um, everybody, you can find me at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. Uh, you can email me at the moment, bk at gmail.com, but don't accidentally send me your prescription because I won't know what to do with it. I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. I can't do anything with it. I don't know how to make glasses. How am I going to grind the glass? Um, all right, everyone. See you uh, next time. Thanks. Thanks.